Hey, welcome everybody. It's good to see all of you. My name is Jamie. If I don't know you or haven't met you, I'd like to after service. It'd be really awesome. Um, I am the co-pastor here with Heidi, and it is a gift to be with you. Wow. Uh, yeah. So this sermon, I it's kind of been just a crazy couple weeks for us at home for various reasons, and I, I'm not haven't been like having the clearest of thoughts in the world. You guys ever experienced that where there's just life is really hectic and busy and there's things going on, things weighing on your mind or your heart and, and you just like, there's sudden giant holes in your memory and what you're thinking. So I, you, it's, people are going, no, I've never experienced that at all. Are you okay? Do you need some help? Like, I'm okay. Uh, but I was wondering because I sat down last night to go over my messages. That's my, my habit. I finish it by Thursday and then I just let it sit. And I take a full Sabbath day, which I highly recommend you to do. We're going to talk a little bit about that later. But uh, I take a whole day just to pff, relax in the presence of God, be with my family, be with Jesus, uh, be with my thoughts, be with my dog, be with the sunset and the sunrise and just the beauty of nature and to delight. And I took that day after we, we had conference this week, a Foursquare Northwest conference. And I came back to this sucker last night and I looked at it and I go... Well, this sounds like it was written by an eight-year-old. There's incomplete sentences, and things don't connect, and these ideas are all over the places, and why do I have 15 pages of writing? Like, what happened? So, this is going to be a long sermon, guys. No, I'm kidding. So, I, I, I came back to it, and I started kind of rewriting and reworking and just really trying to, like, Spirit, what are you saying today? And one of the things that I kind of heard as I was coming to this was, God said to me, he's like, Jamie, do you know how many churches are in the United States? And I'm like, no, God, I don't know. And he says, well, you need to Google it. Because, I don't know, I mean, God wasn't like verbally speaking to me, and he wasn't going to drop a number in my head because he knows numbers in my head don't work. I'd have been like 7 million? I don't know. So I Googled it, and here's what I found. There in this country right today are 350 to 400,000 churches and houses of worship. You just get your brain around that? 350 to 400,000. That means there are 350 to 400,000 pastors preaching sermons across this country over the course of, you know, yesterday and today, maybe tomorrow. I don't know how people are working it, but during the course of the week, 350 to 400,000 sermons are being preached. And then God said, so how many of those sermons are going to be amazing? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. He goes, on, how many of them are going to be mediocre? I don't know. And how many of them are going to be really lousy? <laughs> and then I said, God, what am I going to give people this Sunday? Something really amazing, something mediocre, or something really lousy? He says, I don't know. That's for me to know and you to find out. But the point is, 350 to 400,000 churches, 350 to 400,000 pastors preaching sermons, 350 to 400,000 sermons across this country just America, just the United States, and this is just one of many. And you are a part of a church, a part of one of many. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to all of us right now. 
And I think God is inviting us to remember that we are a part of something much bigger than us and invited into something much bigger than us. And that's the heart of this text and the heart of this sermon series, which we're preaching, which we're calling Beloved, the community of the beloved, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, kind of exploring the Trinity. What is the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity that the Christian church has taught and believed for the last couple thousand years? And what what are its implications for us? So I want to root us in a scripture today, John 17. So if you have a Bible, I really encourage you to have a physical Bible with you. It's very helpful. And And I really encourage you to have physical Bible versus a digital Bible because it's really good to see where you're at in the bigger story. You know, the, you pull out your phone, which is fine, uh, but you only see a small part, right? And the rest of it's somehow packed in there. The whole story of God in a little phone like this, that's kind of amazing, isn't it? Uh, so John, the book of John, if you open to, I don't know, the back third, it's, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 17, verses 20 through 24. And it's going to be up on the screen too. Um, and I'm just read this to you. Little context, this is Jesus praying, and it's the middle of his prayer, okay? Jesus is praying, he's uh, seeking God um, in the last days of his life before he's crucified. And he says this to God, I ask not only on behalf of these, the disciples that are there, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their word. So just a quick pause. It's probably my car. (laughs) Stay out of my car. Okay, anyway. Uh, Those who are going to believe, let me read that again. See, on behalf of those who believe in me through their word. So that is you and me, right? The disciples preached, people believed. Those people talked and told people about Jesus and other people believed. And those people, and so on and so forth, throughout 2,000 years of history till we come to the United States where there are 350 to 400,000 churches full of people. And this church to this day to you, This word has come. And so Jesus is praying for you, not just for somebody way out there. So just hold that in your mind. Jesus is praying this for you. He says this, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their word, that they may also be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us. So that the word may be believe, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the glory that you have given me, I have given them. Okay, now them again, stretching down through the ages, the glory that God gave Jesus, He has also given to you, so that they may be why one, as we, the Father and the Son, are one. I in them and you in me that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. This is the word of God for the people of God. We've done this over and over again, right? So your response is supposed to be, thanks be to God. (laughs) Thank you, God. Yeah. So thank you, God, for this word. And thank you that you are calling us to something new and different and that you have spoken to us, not just to the days of old and not just the way back when, but through the ages that your word comes to us this morning. And I pray, God, that we would begin to see you and to understand you and to enter into your presence in the way that you have designed us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So this passage is a little bit confusing. 
It's got a lot of like mixed up language. In fact, if you were to take this and put it into your computer in the grammar mode, it would be all over the place. It'd be like, this is the worst grammar ever because all of these prepositions and nouns and stuff, they're all like mixed up. We've got me and you and them and us and the future and the past and the present tense. It's all just mixed up. And the reason it is, is because Jesus is not just praying, but he is actually telling the disciples something about who he is and about who God is that is super duper confusing. They get this really confused picture of God. So the early Christians, they were mostly Jewish. Now, I don't mean like they were like partly Jewish and partly other things, but I mean, most of them were Jewish and some of them were not. Are you following me there? He's not just, he's not mostly dead. He's, you know, he's most, mostly Jewish people. So these Jewish people had this understanding of who God was because they had the whole Old Testament scripture. Their whole culture was around this Old Testament scripture and around the worship practices of the Jews. And the Jews believed that God was how many? One. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. That's what they believed. God is one. But then they have Jesus come on the scene, and these people are seeing Jesus perform miracles. They're seeing Jesus challenge the religious leaders. They're seeing Jesus go to the cross, and they're seeing Jesus die, and they're seeing Jesus rose again. And they're now asking this question, who in the world is Jesus? We've got this, this person who comes off a lot like God, who's even said he's the son of God, and yet we've got this teaching that tells us, from God, that there is one God. So how can we have one God and then this other person, Jesus, being like God? And then to make things even more confusing, if you read the text around that, what I just read you in John 17, if you go back to like verse uh, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, Jesus is all over the place. He's like, I'm going to go away to my Father, God. I'm going away to God. And you're like, okay, I'm getting my brain around this. And he says, and it's to your benefit that I go because I'm going to send you an advocate. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send you the Spirit of God. Now we've got this third person out there and they're just like really confused. And it's like looking at a Picasso painting. They're like trying to make sense of what's going on. Like there's so many colors and why are the eyes in the wrong place? You know, we get confused when we look at this. It's somehow beautiful and somehow disturbing. And that's how it was for the disciples trying to make sense of this. So they're listening to all these firsthand accounts, people after the early disciples, and they're, they're reading the stories, they're reading the Gospels, and they're confused. But then they began to search the Old Testament scriptures, and they started to see something that was kind of hidden in there. They first have this, okay, God is one, so we hold on to that, but then they saw that God the Father is, in Genesis 1, speaking things into existence, but that there is this Spirit. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Like, oh, wait a minute. It's not just one, but now we got two. What do we do with that? And then they come further into the book of Genesis, and they hear the story of Abraham, and, and, the, and God comes down and meets with him, and it's actually three people, and, and they talk with him, and it realizes, like, this is this picture of God. There's these three people, and two of them go away to another town to see what's going on, and one of them stays and talks with him in the flesh. There's this other person, and they're, they're wrestling with it. They're trying to figure it out. They're trying to figure out why David in the Psalms talks about God in the plural, why God at creation is, is making people in, in the image of us. And, and we're going to talk about that in a second, in Genesis 1, in the image of, of us. More than one. It's all plural. And then we have just John 12 through 16, where there's examples of Jesus going all over the place saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
no man comes to the Father, the one God, except through me. But then he says, if you know me, you know my Father also, because we're one. And from now on, you have seen him. Jesus isn't the Father, but he's so like the Father that if you've seen him, you've seen one, you've seen the other. Jesus is the doorway to God, but he's also the way to know God and to see God and to experience God and to be in God's presence. It's so confusing. John 16, 17. Or seven says this, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Holy Spirit can't come, this third person. So there's all these pieces and parts, and they're flowing around, and they are trying to make sense of this idea of these multiple gods that is one God, and we don't know what to do with it. And this is a really important question, because remember, as we talked a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at like world religions and this idea that Jesus is the only way to God, and we asked this pet question of who is on the mountaintop, right? Who is on the mountaintop? It's this, there are many paths to God, is what culture would say, but the reality is if you look at world religions, every single one of them has a different God at the top. And so they're asking this question, who is at the top? If we look at these three pieces and parts about who God is, how do we explain this? And so people landed in different places in the first century. They were wrestling with it. Some people landed in this place saying that, you know what, it's like in your car. If you have sport mode in your car or a pair of uh, Crocs, you know, you put the little strap up and you're in sport mode. You have your dress Crocs when the strap is down and sport mode when it's up. If you're in your Subaru and you're driving down the road, you're in normal mode, but then you hit the dirt roads, you press sport mode, it changes the car. It's the same car, but a different mode, right? So they're like, it's different modes of God. It's the same God, but it's different modes. So there's God the Father all through the Old Testament. And then he's like, oh, let's press sun mode. And now he's the sun. And, you know, there's still just one God, but now we got a different mode. And then he goes, oh, but now we're going to, the sun's going away because he's got a body. And so we're going to send the spirit mode. Boom, spirit mode. We press spirit mode and the spirit fills all the people. Same in substance, kind of like water, ice, and vapor, but different experientially different forms of the same thing. But this was rejected by the church early on because there is this sense in the scripture of a differentiation between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus. He makes it very clear that they're not the same thing, that there is the Father and that there is the Son and that there is the Holy Spirit. And we have different thoughts, different actions, different realities. We live as one. We are in, in connected as one, but we're experientially, we're very different. Additionally, if Jesus dies on the cross, we have a real big problem because suddenly the God that we believe is holding everything together is dead. Even for a moment, if that were to happen, it'd all fly apart. So we're like, it can't be just a different mode. And then Jesus says on the cross, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? So how can a person reject themselves even on the cross? So it can't be a different mode. This is kind of held on even today. We have this uh, a group called the Oneness Pentecostals who believe that there is a, there's, there's just one God and it's different modes of God. It's a group of people who believe that God only exists as spirit now. And it denies the physical resurrection of Jesus, which means that our bodies don't matter very much and that this world doesn't matter very much. And it contradicts a whole lot of scripture. So that one was rejected, modes. Then we have tritheism. Okay, this is basically pantheism. This is where there is more than one God. You guys know, like the Romans, they had the goddess Athena. They had the goddess Artemis. They had Apollo. They had all these different gods. And they mix and match in different cultures, but they all look different, and they're 
There's just all these different gods. Hinduism today is, a, is an expression of pantheism. But this idea was like, okay, well, now we see that there are three, so there must be three separate gods. Each expression is completely individual with individual wills and individual work. Each acts according to its own will and its own desires, completely separate from all the others. And what we have if we break that community down of the three is three gods who act uh, not just, uh, just on their own, but even against each other. That they have their own desires. That the Son doesn't necessarily desire what the Spirit desires, and the Spirit doesn't necessarily desire what the Father desires. And when we play this out, what we get today is modern-day Mormonism, which believes that we each become gods like Jesus did. That we elevate ourselves to the level of a god. The Seventh-day Adventists do this as well. We, we separate the three of them, we worship them separately, and then, in practicality, one, one rules over the other. And that was rejected because that's just heresy. There is one God. Then we had this idea of subordination, which Heidi talked a little bit about last week, that there is a hierarchy of gods, right? We have God the Father, then there's God the Son and God the Spirit, that they're not equal. They're the same, but they're not equal. Have you ever heard of like, the idea of a, the greatest of equals? There's like one that is more equal than all the others somehow. It doesn't work out practically. That Jesus may have been God, but he wasn't equal to the Father. And the Spirit may be God, but he wasn't equal to the Father. And this was rejected because it violates the very character of God. How can the Holy Spirit be God without the full power of God? How can the Son be the perfect reflection of God if he's not equal to God? Jesus and the Spirit are then dismissed as less than God, which doesn't square with the picture of the New Testament. And what happens is we kind of end up with this impersonal God that we can't know, we can't interact with, and it doesn't fill us in any way. It's deism, which is just the belief that there is a God out there, but he's not knowable, and he doesn't seem to care much about what's going on here. And sadly, many churches believe this practically. Now, they don't believe it theologically. They live as though it's true. So they've got all these ideas, like how do we resolve all the craziness with these three persons? And they wrestled and they wrestled and different churches were, were following one way and, and other churches following another way. And it was very disunified around this topic of who is Jesus? Is he the son of God? What is the Holy Spirit? Is this from God? And for the first hundred, couple hundreds of years, this is a long time, people were wrestling with it and we don't know what to do until we come to the Council of Nicaea, around 400 and the guys and gals come together and they wrestle for several years with this topic until they come up with this, <laughs> okay, they didn't understand, and we still don't understand, but a way of expressing what's going on in these scriptures. And they say this, it's a trinity, tri-unity. And a better way of saying it is community, that God at his core is community. There's no language to describe it, so we invented a word that there's three that are so united as to be one, that God is personal, and his personhood has reached out to people, that God is one, as he's made clear in the Old Testament, and not three, and yet we've got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son. He said so. Jesus exercises the power of God. Jesus described a relationship that we can see throughout the Old Testament between the Father and the Spirit and the Son. Jesus said that he was God's Son, and he was going back to his Father who sent him. He claimed to be God, but he wasn't the Father. The Holy Spirit is then sent to us by Jesus through the Father. The Holy Spirit is God living in us, and he's an advocate, a guide, a helper. The Father is not the Son, but is God. 
The Son is not the Father, but is God. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son, but is God. They are equal and yet separate, totally unified as one, a community, a community of the beloved who loves one another so perfectly as to be completely united in one. It is so confusing, right? I just, like, you just, why did you even say all that, Jamie? Because it's just confusing. And it makes me think of the movie The Emperor's New Groove. Do you guys remember The Emperor's New Groove? There's a scene where, where the two main characters, one is a llama, the other is a great big fat guy, and they fall off of a cliff, and they grab a hold of a vine as they're falling, and then they swing. And there's this point at which the llama has grabbed a vine from the other side of this canyon, and the fat guy's got the other side, and they're holding onto one another in the middle, and it's this three-part tension that's keeping them alive and in the air and from falling to certain doom at the bottom of the canyon. That's exactly what we're invited to do with these three parts of God, the three presences of God, this us, this community of the beloved that we hold in detention, that God is one and that God is three, and we hold on to that reality, and it's a mystery, and I can't get my brain around it, but that's okay because there's good news in God being a community. Jesus desires us to be one as God is one. As he is one with God, he desires for us to be one with him. It's the incredibly good, good news that we humans are being brought into, we were brought into being, we were brought into creation by God's word, and we are being brought into community through the blood of Jesus to participate with God in that us-ness, that Usness, the threeness, the community of God. Entering into community with the Trinity is what you and me were created for. These people that Jesus is praying for, not just then and there, but down the line through the ages, he knew that we were created to enter into relationship with this community of the Trinity. And not out of a need, God didn't have a need, but out of a desire. And that's what Heidi brought last week, really this sense that we are recognized by God, we are seen, we are loved, and we are desired. We are so desired by God. And we can talk about theology, and we can talk about history, and all of these things, and we can wrestle with this idea of the Trinity, but the whole point of the Trinity is that we would get to this place where we go, God is a community, and I am invited into that community. I can experience that community. I can be loved by that community, and it's incredible. It's what Jesus wanted more than anything else, that we would be a part of God's us-ness. Not that we would become God, but that we would enter into relationship with him. I love this verses that we read in John 17. He says, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they be in us, I and them and you and me, that they may be completely one with us. It feels an awful lot like a dance. God's in me and he's in there and we're going in and out and the Holy Spirit's coming in and there's just this movement and you're sitting there looking at it and you can't divide one from the other and you do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself around and then all of a sudden I find myself in the middle of it and is it the Spirit or is it Jesus speaking to me and is God the Father resting up? And I don't know and it's just this glorious, beautiful dance. 
in which God draws near to us. And I love this quote from this guy, excuse me, Thomas Torrance. He was a Catholic priest, but he said this, God draws near to us in such a way as to draw us near to himself within the circle of knowing himself. That these three parts of God know each other perfectly. There's no barriers. There's no opposing opinions. There's no inequality. There's no race dividing them. There's no political opinions dividing them. They are just perfectly one. And God has drawn near to us in such a way that he draws us in. So many people are looking for God. But God is looking for us and moving toward us. This community is reaching out to us. And it's pulling us into himself. Closer and closer, drawing us into the circle. Kind of like gravity, like a a planet that's orbiting a sun that's slowly decaying and being drawn in until it becomes one with that sun. It sounds so destructive and yet in this context it's so beautiful because we are invited into God, welcomed and even longed for, as Heidi said. This is the significance of our baptism. We often, you guys know what the imagery of baptism is, when we take somebody and we dunk them underwater in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and we dead to our sins and raised to new life in Christ. We go under the water, and it's this image of cleansing, but it's also this image of being plunged in totally immersed in a completely different reality, no longer living out here in this open air, but plunged into the life of God. It's this picture of us being welcomed and embraced and surrounded by the Trinity, by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and into that relationship. And it's beautiful. But here's the thing, and here's the big point of my whole message. We can't enter that alone. Genesis 1, 26-27 says this, Then God said, Let us, the Trinity, make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth, which makes me wonder why we're afraid of spiders. It says right here we're in charge of them. They still creep me out, though especially the hairy ones. Oh, it's brokenness, right? That's like the fall. It's the result of the fall. I just figured it out. Anyway, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, when we hear this us and our and our likeness in the beginning of that, in the Hebrew, it is literally a plural. This is not a royal we. You guys ever heard the king or queen say that? Something along those lines like, we would like to thank you. I'm like, who's this we? It's just you there. Like, when I was doing tree work years ago, uh, I remember there was this guy named Pat. And if Pat ever listens to one of these sermons, he's going to moan. But we would, we would go out, and Pat liked to teach how to do things, which is really nice, right? Because I was a pastor, not a tree worker, and they handed me a chainsaw. It's a bad idea. And he says, so he would bring me along, and we'd go to this tree, and he'd sit down and look at the tree, and he goes, now what Pat would do and I'd look at him, I'm like, who's this other Pat? 
I only know you. Like, what Pat would do, and he would proceed to tell me. And then another time he went out, and he had to cut this tree down, and he had to put it down right next to a house. I mean, it was like literally feet. And so he cut this thing, but there was this moment where there's a sudden spray of dust rather than sawdust. It was like, poof. And the tree comes down, and it just grazes the house, and it takes a gutter off. And he sits down on the stump, and we go over, we're like, hey, are you okay? And he's like, yeah. What Pat should have done was he should have noticed, <laughs> like, what are you talking about, Pat? Who is this other Pat? This is not a royal we, a royal us. It's not God saying, now what God did was, it's literally saying there was more than one part. And then it said, now we're going to make people, human beings, in the image of this more than one part. We make them male and female. And then we see the diversity grow. As you read the story, it begins to flourish, grow. And we have the division of the nations and languages and, and colors and all this stuff. The, the world just keeps going in the image of God. God made us as a reflection of relationship. God made more than one of us so that we would be in relationship, not just with him, but with one another. Tim Keller said this way, if we are made in God's image, and he is three persons, then at our fundamental core, we are made for community. Follow that? If God is three persons, and he made us in his image and likeness, which Genesis 1 says he did, then we are fundamentally made for community. We're not made for isolation. We're not made to be hermits. We're not made to be cloistered off all by ourselves, never talking or seeing anybody. We're not made to be alone in our pain. We're not made to be alone in our struggles. We are made to be together in community, you and me, us, me and you, us in God, he in us, this glorious, crazy, difficult to understand dance. In the text, all of the language that we read today is a language of you and me. You look at all the language surrounding it. It's, it's all about you and me and us and him and he and us, and it just mixes all up. He's like, I, I'm doing this not on behalf of, of just these people that are here, but those that are to come. Th me, th or sorry, those, there, they, all, they, us, the whole world is even in there them. I mean, it's, it's multiplied. You guys following that? It's not just him or her, this one person that I'm praying for. It's praying for all of us. In chapter 14 of John, Jesus says, love one another. Not just love your neighbor, not just love people like you, but one another. Chapter 16, Jesus sends the advocate again in the royal you to us, the disciples, to multiple people. All the language here includes each of us invited into a community, the beloved community of God. And it's not just the language of Scripture that does it, but all the worship practices of the Jews in the Old Testament and even to this day are done in community. They say, like, this, and even the early Christians are like, this is how we become the community of God. This is how we connect and become one as the Father is one. We do things together. Worship. Worship was always done in community on specific days, not just on a Sunday. There was different times of the week, different times of the year. 
And it was never really optional. If you were a part of the family of God, you showed up to worship because the community was incomplete without you. Let me, let me say that again. Worship in the Old Testament and in the early New Testament was not optional. And it wasn't enforced. It was, it was in participated in because people knew that the community was incomplete without you. And I want you to hear that. This community is incomplete without you. We, we believe in volunteerism. We come to church because we want to, because we get something out of it. But you need to know the community is incomplete without you. And so we come and we worship God together. We enter into the community of God as a community. There was feast days. They were set by the calendar. And everyone celebrated. It wasn't like a potluck Sunday where, I, oh, shoot, I didn't make anything, so I'm not going to show up. Right? Because the party was incomplete without them, without their part, without their person, without their presence. The feast was incomplete. And so everybody showed up, and everybody brought it, and everybody participated and helped feed one another, and it became a celebration of the community in the presence of the community of God. The early church practiced communion, which was given to them by Jesus himself. And he had one bread and one cup, and he broke it, and he gave it to many of them, saying, this is my body, this is my blood, which is broken and shed for you. One body, one bread, one cup given to the community. And as they ate and as they drank, they knew that they were being made one with God and with that person next to them who ate that other piece of bread. And they were looking at that other person and going, well, I own all the businesses in Corinth, but this guy over there lives on the street. Why is he eating food that I am eating? Jesus is standing back in heaven going, because you two are one. Because you two are one. You are a part of a community, and you are a part of me. One body given to many. The Sabbath day was set up in the Old Testament, and I want you to know that the early church all the way up until really the last 150 years, practiced the Sabbath, for lack of better words, religiously. It was a day in which the community rested together. So we got this idea of the Sabbath being a, a stop working and that Jesus is our ultimate Sabbath, and that is true, that he is the great rest. We no longer have to work to cleanse our sins, that Jesus did it for us. But the early church continued to practice this as a reflection of that ultimate rest. In the, in, the, in the book of Genesis, after the end of creation, on the sixth day, God finishes all of his work, and on the seventh day it says, he rested. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, does the Trinity need rest? Was the work of creation just too much for God? It's like, oh my gosh, I can't even believe it. I'm so tired after this, those fish. Those fish were exhausting and then I made man, and that guy just won't shut up. You know, I just need a rest. I need a break. And if God is eternal, and if he has unlimited power and unlimited creativity, rest doesn't seem to be something that he would need. And yet he comes to the seventh day and he rests. Here's what's happening. God is excited to spend a day with his creation. And you are a part of that creation. God is excited to spend a day in community, in relationship with all that he's created. 
Our idea of rest, I think, is a bit out of whack. When we read through the Old Testament to understand the Sabbath laws, we see that the rest of the Sabbath invited, in, involved first and foremost delight. Delight. That's not a word we use very much, right? Like, I think it's like a salad you bring to potluck, right? It's got something delight, like whipped cream delight or, I don't know, canned fruit delight. It's like, we don't really use it, you know, or like Royale. We use that one for like a hamburger, right? It's a hamburger Royale or a hamburger delight. But God is like, no, delight is to enjoy the fruit of all of our labor, to delight in the gifts of the moment, to delight in the gifts of the community. It includes the four F's. Delighting in finances, delighting in food, delighting in friends, and delighting in family. I didn't add another F. There's lots of Fs that you could throw in there. It's just enjoying the gifts that God has together, which is the second thing that happens when you look at the rest of the Sabbath, is presence. To celebrate with family and close friends, to sit and just, just to be in each other's presence, not distracted by the work. God gave us meaningful work and good work, but he gave us this day so that we would enjoy the community of the day together, being present to each other as God is present to us. And lastly, joy. To experience the joy of God in you and for you and all around you. The joy of being the object of God's love and affection, of being invited into his presence, of being a, in community with the community of God. The joy of having the gift of a body that experiences God's goodness in creation, that can delight in food, that can delight in a game, that can delight in a friend, that can delight in a neighbor, that can delight in your husband or your wife or your children. Joy comes out of that. Now, the whole point of this is that we are invited into community with God. And the entire way of life for the New Testament church and for the Old Testament church was a way of life that allowed people to enter into that community together. But we live in an individualist world with individual uh, plans, with individual uh, Schedules, there's a word I was looking for, just individual lives. And we try to plan and organize to be together rather than the together being the heart of all that we do. And so we face a great challenge. But I want you to know that you are invited in. That the community is incomplete without you. That the Sabbath day of rest is somehow lacking when you don't rest with everybody else. That the worship of God is somehow diminished when you don't participate. We are the community of God. We, this is the beloved community. As, and it's a direct reflection of the community of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are invited into the dance. And good things happen when we join. As we close, I wanted to share a poem um, it's from this book called The Timbered Choir from Wendell Berry. Uh, Wendell Berry was a poet laureate. He's a farmer. So you're like, oh, I hate poetry. This guy's a farmer. And, and he's a farmer over on the East Coast. And he's a beautiful poet, poet laureate, which means he was like a national, nationally recognized poet. And uh, he would take a Sabbath every Saturday, and he would write poems. And in the midst of all these poems, I just love reading them. I, I read them every, every evening, pretty much. Um, he wrote this one stanza or two, and I'm going to share it with you. Because I want you to understand not just what happens on the Sabbath, 
but what happens when we participate in the community of God? And this is what he says. The mind that comes to rest is tended in ways it cannot intend. Get the play on words there? I didn't intend for this to happen, but it's being tended and cared for. It is born, preserved, and comprehended by what it cannot comprehend. When we come into community with God, when we come and we stop in his presence, when we come together, there are things about us that we don't even comprehend that others can see. And we encounter God in ways that our mind just cannot understand. And then I love this last section. It says this, Your Sabbath, Lord, keeps us by your will, not ours. And it is fit that our only choice should be to die into that rest or out of it. To enter God's rest, to enter the community of God, to be in relationship with him or out of it. And to be in relationship with him is to be at rest, to be at ease. This is our choice. So the question I have to close this morning is this. What keeps you from entering into the community of God in a way that reflects the oneness of God? What is it that keeps you divided from the Holy Spirit? Keeps you divided from Jesus? Keeps you divided from the Father? Keeps you divided from your neighbor? Keeps you divided from other people in these seats? What is it that keeps you from entering into this community in the way that Jesus is in community with the Father? What keeps you from entering into the community of the Trinity? What's holding you back? It's going to give us a minute to ponder that, and then I'm going to pray and send us out. So let's just be silent before the Lord and let the Holy Spirit speak to us. What is it that is keeping you from entering into community that reflects the oneness of God? Earlier today, we raised our hands in just a posture of receiving. And I, I kind of I noticed that when we put our hands out like this, they were doing one of two things. We're either saying, can I have the keys? Or, hey, here are the keys. <laughs> so let's put our hands in the same posture and to put that thing in our hands mentally. And as you're able, I just want to invite you to give that to God. Say, God, this is the thing that keeps me from entering into your community or this community in the same way that Jesus and you are one. God, I give it to you. God, I pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us of the selfishness of holding this thing so close, whether it's an opinion, uh, whether it's a, a fear, 
whether it's an anger, whether it's a sense of shame or brokenness, whether, God, we are self-protecting, um, that we are holding this selfishly because we are afraid to be in full community with you. God, I pray for you to forgive us of that and that you would take whatever it is that each person here is holding in their hands and that you would work in it and through it. We know that as we lay this here um, just in our minds before your feet, it doesn't mean that it goes away for us, but that we have to walk out these doors and we have to choose to walk into oneness with you and with each other. God, I pray that you would teach us to be in community, differentiated, to be like whole selves with our own opinions, thoughts, values, dreams, and futures, and yet in a community with you, bound together by the oneness of God, that we would walk wholly out in this world. And as you prayed so long ago, that our oneness together with you would tell the world of your goodness and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you heard nothing else in my long, weird sermon, you were invited into the community of the Trinity. You were desired, you were longed for, you are loved, and it is safe. And we will work to be a safe space for you here. We will love you, and I will love you at the best of my ability, the best of my way I know how as I grow in Christ. Jesus loves you, and we love you. Go in the grace of our Lord to love one another as Christ has loved you. Amen. We will see you guys next week. Meet us in the backspace. We want to meet you. Vote over there on your favorite dessert. Uh, be in community with each other for a little while.